I had a glorious rock bottom. Oh, I had a rock then. bottom to end all <laughs> rock bottoms. It was probably three, three and a half years ago that it started becoming obvious in my in my life externally. Like people started really, you got a problem. And I still didn't want to look at it. Like I remember the first time of even contemplating no alcohol for the rest of my life. And it was terrifying. But it was terrifying that thing that it was terrifying to me to not have the back door, to actually have yeah. to show up in my life. Two and a half years ago, I quit for three weeks and then it would start. And then I quit for two weeks and then it would start. And then I quit for a month, then it would start. It was just this endless cycle. And I was in Italy doing some doing some business and stuff and it began. And I ended up in a rehab clinic in Italy. That could have been my rock bottom, but it wasn't. I wasn't done yet. So I did seven months sober after that, and then the rock bottom came, and I didn't even see it coming. Welcome to the Tribe. This is your weekly podcast from Tribe Sober. Whether you're already sober, striving to be sober, or just plain sober curious, you need a tribe. You need a tribe because it's so hard to do this alone. You need a tribe because you need support. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've got your back. Here at Tribe Sober, we have people at all stages of the journey, all helping each other to stay on track. On this podcast, we've got recovery stories to inspire you, experts to inform you, and plenty of advice on how to ditch the drink and change your life. So here's your host, Tribe Leader, Janet Gorond. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Tribe Sober Podcast, episode 188. My name is Janet Gorond. I'm the founder of Tribe Sober, and I'm your host for this podcast. Here at Tribe Sober, we help people to change their relationship with alcohol, and then to go on and actually thrive in their alcohol-free lives. And over the last seven years, we've helped thousands of people to do just that. We created Tribe Sober because we know from experience that it's really hard to change your drinking habits alone. You need to find a new tribe. Because social norms are so powerful. And that's why connecting with others on the same path will keep you on track and inspire you to keep going. So at Tribe Sober, we're all about community. It's a community where everyone strives for an alcohol-free lifestyle. And many of our members are already thriving in their alcohol-free lives and inspiring others. Each week, we feature a community voice just to give you a flavor of the awesomeness of our tribe. I was getting my naltrexone and antibus and things at a pharmacy uh, at a disc camp. And there was a lady in front of me. I could see her meds and I'm like, oh, did, is, is it someone with a gastric bypass? And we talked about how the surgery went and how's weight loss been and all of that sort of thing. And then my meds came and then I'm like, these are my drinking meds. So, uh, this, is, this is for alcohol. And she said, oh, and have you got like a support system? And I'm like, no, like I didn't really resonate with AA, you know. There's quite a bit that I didn't like about AA and I don't know if it's a good support system. I need to go back maybe, but I'm looking for the right thing. And then they said, well, have you heard about this tribe sober? No, and they gave me the website and I looked it up on Google and all of them then reached out to you. So that was my support system and I've loved being with you guys. 
So if you'd like to join our warm and welcoming community, just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. My guest today is Brendan Watt, who overcame his alcoholism to become a worldwide speaker, best-selling author and facilitator. I began our conversation by asking Brendan to introduce himself. I spent most of my life in Australia. I grew up in a very interesting family. It was very unstable, I would say, and we had a lot of abuse. Me and my two sisters, I grew up with one younger sister and one older sister. So I lived in Australia and I didn't really spend that much time with my father, but his point of view was if you're going to be a man, you got to do X, Y, and Z. You've got to be rough and tough and you've got to get a trade. He had this formula for what I should be. I was one of those kids who really wanted to be loved. So I tried to do those things for other people, but in doing so, I really eliminated a lot of myself growing up. So by the time I got to late teenage years, I'd already started with the drinking and drugs and different things like that. But I got myself into a relationship. I got myself a trade in construction work. And I was on my road to becoming the man. So I had my son when I was 24. And by the time I got to 28, 29, I was basically at the end of my road. I just was ready to give up. And and I couldn't find joy. I couldn't find any ease in my life. I didn't want to get up in the morning at all. And I remember this, there was one day where I would have been 29. My son was, he was four years old at the time and I was sharing a bedroom at my mother's house. I just left his mother. And so I'm sharing this tiny little bedroom with this kid and I was just waking up miserable. I'd done some spiritual things, but I basically was just like, whatever is out there right now, I need help because I'm done. I've had enough. If this is life, I want out. And it was the next day, I found this little ad in the newspaper that said, all of life comes to me with ease, joy, and glory, call Mel. And I was like, what? But it stood out. It was this tiny little ad. And I called this girl and she was like, I do this thing called the Access Consciousness Bars. And she was just as nervous as I was because she just put this ad in the newspaper. And she was like, look, it's this technique that, basically is about erasing all of the thoughts, the beliefs, the ideas out of your world so that you can have a lot more choice. I was like, all right, I, when can I get a session? And I went and saw this girl and it was an hour and a half session and I laid down on this massage table so she could do it and I sobbed uncontrollably for an hour and a half and it was just like everything started just coming out of me. Everything that was just buried that I'd buried myself Mm -hmm. under just started coming out and after that session was the first time since I was tiny that I had any sense of me and that was the beginning of something different for me wow so it sounds like you got back in touch with who you really are yeah well yeah uh, yeah maybe it was the first time anyone had really listened to you (laughs) how you felt about things yeah and the other thing, too, it was the first time that, that someone truly just desired to contribute to me with nothing in return. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to do anything. And I think for a lot of us, we learn this transactional reality as if that's receiving. Yeah. 
And yeah. what happened after that? So after that, I started doing some seminars with Access Consciousness and my life started changing quickly. And I started working with this company and then a few years down the track, I became a facilitator. But for me, the one thing that hung in there, my one back door that I kept in place was alcohol. It's often the last thing that we let go, isn't it? Even though we start changing our lives in all sorts of ways. I know yeah. I was one as well. So many women, for example, that do the exercise, they eat organic food, they do all this healthy stuff, and then they drink a bottle of wine every night. It's like <laughs> the last thing that we can bear to let go because we can't imagine our life without it. Yeah, and I couldn't. And it's funny you say that too because... In the years where it was starting to really progress with the alcohol, I would do a cleanse for two or three days just to justify why I could start drinking again. But for me, I didn't want to let go of the escape. Uh, it's, it's like you do, you work on yourself, you do this. See, for most of us, we have a desire to grow. So with that in place, it's not like that's still not occurring, but it's like you grow too much in one moment and things become uncomfortable you've still yeah. got that back door in place. Yeah, oh, that's a very good description of it, the back door. I heard someone describe it as the easy button the other day. She said yeah. every time she felt angsty, she had to press the easy button and have a drink. <laughs> we have to learn to get comfortable with being uncomfortable, don't we, I think, when yeah. we give up drinking. Yeah, and I think for a lot of us, we live in a world where it's all about instant gratification. It's yeah. all about escape, and it's about how do I feel better? So we yeah. put a lot quickly. of our – Yeah, how do I feel better quickly? And so we put a lot of energy into the way that we feel. We use our feelings to determine what we can create. But it doesn't necessarily give you any freedom because you're only as free as what you can feel. So mm -hmm. for me – it wasn't until recently when I really started this journey of sobriety where I'm beginning to finally in my world have a sense of freedom. Mm. Yeah, it is freedom. I agree. Over the years, did you try and cut down or yeah. set rules <laughs> about your drinking like most of you, us did? <laughs> I tried everything, everything. And I remember going to, a doc, going to the doctors in Australia probably must have been six or seven years ago and I was drinking heavily at the time and I got back from this trip from Costa Rica and, and I was ill and this is when my body had really started not coping well with it and I went and saw the doctor and they did these liver tests and stuff and they're like you need to stop drinking so I was like okay so I tried like I'll do one beer a day and one beer and a glass of wine but what I didn't realize at the time is I'm an alcoholic I have an allergy to alcohol. So as soon as I put one drink in my body, it sets off this chain of cravings mm. that is unmanageable. I could do that for a week until one would turn to yeah. two and two would turn to 10 and yeah. 10 would turn to the never-ending yeah, cycle. We don't have an off switch, basically, do we? Once no. we start, that's it. <laughs> yeah, once we start, that's it. They have this yeah. saying in in – AA in Alcoholics Anonymous, that for an alcoholic, it's one drink is too many and a hundred's never enough. Yeah, absolutely. What do we say? If you can't have one, have none. <laughs> yeah. So did you have a rock bottom or was it just constant? You knew you had to make a change and you finally got to it. 
What was no, the trigger I, for I, you changing? I, I had a glorious rock bottom. Well, I had a rock on, bottom to end all <laughs> rock bottoms. It was probably three, three and a half years ago that it started becoming obvious in my in my life externally. Like people started really, you got a problem. And I still didn't want to look at it. Like I remember the first time of even contemplating no alcohol for the rest of my life and it was terrifying. But it was terrifying that thing that it was terrifying to me to not have the back door, to actually have yeah. to show up in my life. I remember the first AA meeting I went to, that would have been then. I had six beers before I went there <laughs> and I wasn't taking it serious. Two and a half years ago, I quit for three weeks and then it would start. And then I quit for two weeks and then it would start. And then I quit for a month, then it would start. It was just this endless cycle. And I was in Italy doing some doing some business and stuff and it began. And I ended up in a rehab clinic in Italy. That could have been my rock bottom, but it wasn't. I wasn't done yet. So I did seven months sober after that. And then the rock bottom came. And I didn't even see it coming. That was the, the thing that was interesting to me is it was somewhere energetically in my world. I get that it was it was coming. It was planned out. Like it did have an awareness of it, but cognitively it wasn't a step-by-step, -step, oh, I'm going to do this. It was just – it was ready to come. And so this was 16 months ago and and basically had that first drink and then that was it. I drank for 12 days, much of which I don't remember. No, and, of course you don't. And coming out of it. Basically, I destroyed my career. I destroyed my relationships, my friendships. I just lost everything. And within a day, I really looked at it and went, okay, do I actually want to be here? Yeah. Yeah, it brings you, know? you that low, certainly. Yeah. And what was your um, conclusion? Obviously, that you would stick around. I would say that took me probably a few months to get to that because I was still, I was getting sober, but it was not easy at all. Those first few months for me was, and I know for anyone listening who's been on this path knows this. And so I wrestled with whether I desired to actually live, whether I desired to show up, whether I desired to actually know what was true for me and actually create my life. Because see, for me, just having a life was never going to be enough. If that was my if that was my target, then I'm out of here. If I can't live, then that's what I had to shoot for and live, but also who I am. Yeah. I think that's for a lot of us is we go through all that shame and all that self-hatred, that self-abuse. And it's like that part for me was the part I just desired desperately to get away from yeah. my whole life. So, yeah, it's been hard work, but it, it's probably only been the last maybe six months that I've started really like growing into something different. Yeah. yeah, those first few months I so identify with what you're saying. It's really difficult for a start and you just can't imagine that your life is going to get better because you're still fighting this demon and it's really hard work. But as yeah. you say, eventually, if you keep at it, you come into a different place and then well, your life starts changing. For me, it's been in two bits. First of all, I had to do the stop drinking bit, which took six months. And then I had to create a life for myself, a life yeah. that I enjoyed. 
in early sobriety, I couldn't imagine ever enjoying my life without alcohol. I was thinking a bit like you, do I really want to be in this dark and miserable place if this is how my life is going to be? If if this is sobriety, I think you can keep it. Yeah, true. <laughs> but gradually things get so much better, don't they? You're listening to a podcast from Tribe Sober. So I get so much better. If I look back on that, to to even imagine that I would be where I'm at now would just have been a beyond. It would have just been, I couldn't have even began to get a sense of that because once again, it's in that addictive behavior and that addictive pattern, it's looking for instant gratification. But the only way you create a sustainable future and thrive in your life is by getting through all of the things that you've been trying to avoid. Like for me, I had to walk into some painful stuff. There was abuse from childhood and there was different things where I was just like just wanting to do everything I could to get away from it. But in that, and I, you know, I work with a lot of people with this too, is in that we leave so much of us there. Yeah. And in those moments where we give up we, you, you know, where you might be a kid and something's going on in your world and you've been diminished as a being, diminished as you is in that moment of giving up power when you're not willing to actually be present with that energy is you leave you there. I remember the first few days of sobriety and I was terrified because I knew that if this is going to stick, if I'm actually going to get through this, there's going to be some stuff that like even talking about it now makes me want to cry because it, realizing at the time I was like, there's going to be some stuff that I, I really don't want to go through again. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, yeah. but that's what we, you got to be, that's the thing that creates the change. And that's where the personal growth comes, doesn't it? True when you go story. through that pain, because yeah. otherwise we, we just lose ourselves and we don't grow. Have you been in therapy and how have you been managing those demons? So I did a lot of AA in the beginning. I did three to four, three, four meetings a day for the first three or four months. Wow. A lot. <laughs> just like, I'm just giving meetings. I was doing all the AA stuff and I had a sponsor and I did the steps and all these different things. But it's, but now I have access consciousness and I facilitate other people and I also use all of the tools because for me it's AA is vital without it I, I, I don't think I'd be sober right now so in the no. beginning steps for me that was vital but I didn't get the tools in that to create my yeah. life yeah I agree with you we work with a lot of people that have been to AA and they have got sober some of them or maybe they've been sober for a while and then they've relapsed but I think you yeah. end up white knuckling it you haven't really done the work you need yep. to do the kind of work you're talking about to really flourish and thrive because it's not just about not drinking this journey is it there's a lot no. more to it no and it's such a tiny part of it yeah it's you 10 know, we say 10 yeah. is not drinking 90 is the other stuff yeah well, you but know, you can't one, do the other stuff if you're drinking, so you have to no. get that ten percent nailed first. Yeah, you d that, and that's the part where I found AA vital. That's the first step. 
So that thing in early sobriety for me when I was doing that thing that I'd do of trying to figure out how I was going to get out of this the quickest way, that doesn't work. I like the way you say it like that because it really is locking in that 10% first. Yeah, yeah. The other 90 will come after it, but you can't have that other 90% without that first 10. It's almost your reward, isn't it, to for doing the, the hard stuff. I, I yeah. say sometimes that I think sobriety is like a springboard for self-development and you can't yeah. do the self-development without the sobriety. Yeah, true story. Basically, you don't have a future without the sobriety. If you truly have a problem, there's some yeah. people that just want to cut back on drinking or maybe heavy drinkers, but there's also the alcoholic and the alcoholic mm. cannot stop. Mm. That to me, even today, is one of the biggest things is to recognize oh, that's me. I take one drink, I'm gone. Yeah. All thoughts of moderation out of your mind. We often uh, get people that say, oh, teach me how to moderate. <laughs> we say, yeah. if you're here to moderate, you know, you'll never be able to. Because people that can moderate, yeah. they just moderate. They don't go and learn about it. They yeah, comes yeah I think that's a good way of putting it. If you are able to moder moderate, you don't need to be asking how to moderate. That's a good way exactly. of putting it. Because alcohol isn't really on your radar. You know, you just go off and do your stuff and you might have a glass of wine here and there but you're not going to go on a bender <laughs> yeah I knew I was different from the beginning I remember when I had my first drink I was 14 and it was a beer and when I was with some of my sisters one of my older sister had some friends over so it was older people and we had a beer or two beers and then everyone was done and I was like where's more <laughs> The party's just starting. Yeah, the party's just starting. And then throughout teenage years and through my 20s, I'd be with people and we'd have one drink and then they'd go about their lives. And I'd be like, what? How do you, what? Like, where's the rest of the bottle or the rest of the box? Or, But see, that's it wasn't talked about. What used to fascinate me sometimes is you'd be out to dinner with a crowd of people and I'd see some people leave wine in that glass you know <laughs> I think I you know. haven't finished <laughs> I did I do the same thing I, I remember the previous relationship that I was in where it's be drinking wine and she'd get finished she'd have a half a glass left and she'd like go to tip it in the sink and I'd just be like horrified that's the thing that that fascinates me about the alcoholic but also addictive behavior in general is the amount of delusion that you function from, the separation from what's true based on the lies that you live by is just phenomenal to look at now. I look at even two years ago in my life and I was just like, man, I couldn't even see that at all. Yeah. It was so yeah. off my radar because it didn't match the judgments that I had of myself at all. Yeah. Yeah, we're in denial, aren't we? I used to say, but everybody drinks a lot. <laughs> I'm just like yeah. everybody else. <laughs> yeah. But everybody else didn't have a blackout at the end of the evening. <laughs> yeah, true story. Or well, it's like for me, every time I drank towards the end, it was basically just gone. So talk to us about what's been happening since you got sober. I saw in some of your stuff that you realise that sobriety is a gift. And I so agree with you on that one. Yeah. And one of the books that we love that we read a lot in our community and recommend is by Laura McCowan, and it's called We Are the Luckiest. And 
I really believe that now because I know that if I hadn't got in this fix, which I got myself into, I wouldn't be living the life that I'm living today. And I think that the regular drinkers, the ones that can have two, three glasses and then leave it at that, they never actually get to explore and really deconstruct their life and build it again. So that's why I see sobriety as a gift. But what's your take on that? Me too. And for me now, that took me a few, quite a few months. One of the things that kept me looping back into it and just stuck was just the judgment. And it wasn't until I really started looking at, okay, what's the gift in this that I'm not acknowledging? I could see the strength that I was beginning to gain from it. You know, it could, I could begin to see the honesty with myself and others that I was beginning to gain from it. I had a conversation with a friend two days ago. It was just something so small, but I ordered this gift for him. It was a phone case. I'd done four of them and the postage kept losing them, right? He finally gets it and it's the wrong phone case. So I go to look in my phone and I'm like thinking, oh, they screwed it up. I see that I've screwed it up. Instantaneously, the first thing that popped into my head was I can lie about it and say the phone company thing. And I was like, wow. And and as soon as that popped into my head, I was like, that is the way I lived my life. Hmm. And I told him, I was like, you know what, I am so grateful for this because I just realized that I don't lie from instinct anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I just realized that I'm honest with the people in my life. And that right there may seem small to some people, but that is huge to me. Yeah, it, it's about changing our patterns, isn't it? Those patterns yeah. settled for so many years. Yeah, I just lie about everything. <laughs> so now the gift is... I really enjoy looking at what contribution I can be to the world. It's, man, not like addiction isn't a little rampant over the planet. I sometimes feel it's like a cult. Everybody drinking and all this marketing and all the peer pressure. And we're the ones that feel weird because we don't drink, but all we're doing is not drinking poison. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. The whole world's been manipulated. And particularly women, actually, we've been manipulated to think that wine is glamorous and we have to have it in our life. And it's really worked. Big alcohol has done a stunning job. Yeah. Hey, it worked for me. It did its job of escaping. Yeah, that back door, the easy button. (laughs) Yeah, and I think it's like for each and every one of us, if we can recognize that It's not wrong. It's looking at, okay, what does it work for me? Because alcohol works for some people. I've had people that's 90 years old and they're still drinking and smoking and they're happy as Larry. They're just like, yeah, it's great. It works for them. Yeah. You know, and that should be celebrated when it doesn't work for you, when it takes you away from who you are. That's when the work needs to start. Yeah. It takes you away from becoming the person you should be and you need to be, I think. Yeah. Yeah, we we often say connection is the opposite of addiction. You've probably heard that. But it's not just connecting with the people around you. It's connecting with yourself again, isn't it? Yeah. Connecting with yourself. Thing. And also a big thing for me is connecting with the planet, connecting with the earth. Yeah. And I think that's one of the killer things about addiction is it creates so much separation because you're in so much judgment. And each judgment that you have, 
every judgment that we have in our world is a destruction of us. So it's like when your life is basically lived from judgment, you lose all connection to people, to you, to the world around you, to, to the earth. And that's, for me, that's relevant. One of the things that I looked at, okay, so what's truly relevant to me? And what's not relevant that I'm trying to make relevant? And I went through and I looked at different things that were truly relevant to me. Kindness is truly relevant to me. Having that connection, being in communion basically with the world around me and the planet, that's relevant. When I'm going, money's relevant. And then I look at that, I'm like, no, that's not actually relevant. I'm just trying to make it relevant. So it, it got me to look at got me to look at different things because another thing with me was having integrity. I was never shown to function from integrity. So for me, it was just like, say one thing, do another. Honesty with self, honesty with others, what are you talking about? No, you just say what you need to get what you want. <laughs> so that was relevant to me, to learn how to be in integrity with myself and to learn how to be in integrity with others. It gives you a bit more of a sense of what's important to you. Yeah. And you talked somewhere about the misconceptions about happiness. Yeah, I think the misconception of happiness is that there's an outside source that can create it for you. Yeah. And there is not one person on the planet who cannot relate to this, where it's if I had the money, I'd be happy. If I had the relationship, I'd be happy. If I had the job, I'd be happy. But the, the detrimental thing that we do when we make something else the source for our happiness is you cannot receive happiness if it doesn't come from, unless it comes from that source. Mm. So if you have money as the source for happiness, then if you have no money, you have no happiness. Money did not buy you that. I remember when what, many years ago when I was like, if, if once I get to $10,000 in the bank, I'll basically, I know I'll, I'll have it right and I'll, I'll be happy. And I remember the day that $10,000 was finally in my bank account. I was like, nothing changed. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. (laughs) And I realized that it's not the money. But in a way, society's been set up like that, hasn't it? To make us all chase the bigger job, the bigger car, because they want to sell us stuff, basically, don't they? Yeah, they want to sell us stuff, but they also want to create the control. Yeah, so we have have to see through that. Yeah, and yeah, we have to become more conscious and we have to become more aware See, that was the missing element for me with AA, with getting me sober. Unless I'm creating a life with more awareness and more consciousness, that life is not expanding for me and it's not being a contribution to the world. And for a lot of us, we may not even acknowledge that. But I know for me, when I make it about my life, I am bored in a heartbeat. But when I make it something bigger, that's when I'm like, oh, there's that generative energy that I can create from because it's not all about me. I think a lot of people that are addicted to alcohol, they've got really low self-esteem. And when we get sober, we can start to love ourselves again. Yeah. I remember my girlfriend at the time, a few years ago, and she would say to me, you're so confident. And I was like, on the inside, I was like, oh, no, I'm not. No, yeah. that's an image. That's a the total facade of confidence. I cannot tell you the turmoil that is in my world right now. I didn't express it. I didn't let it out. And that was part of the pain that I had to be willing to go through to get to sobriety. 
So these last couple of years, talk to us about those, your sober years. So you're back doing this work that you did years ago when you were crying for an hour and a half, that one. Yep, I am. Access consciousness. I highly suggest people look that up because it's huge around the world now. We're in 178 countries, I think, and there's thousands of facilitators and it's just, it's a gift. The thing I love about access consciousness is it's about empowering people to know what they know. It's not, hey, here's an answer or here's some modality that you follow. It's about recognizing that the question will always empower An answer will always disempower you. A conclusion, an answer, a judgment, any of those will disempower you. So it's about living a life from question. It's also an acknowledgement that each and every one of us, you as a being, are whole. We're not missing parts and pieces that we have to find somewhere. So this journey to discovering who you are, it's here. It's an internal journey. It's not something that you're going to find in some far-off cave in, in the middle of India. It just doesn't work that way. So it's, it's about giving you access to the consciousness that you already are as a being. So, yeah, I facilitate that. I was just thinking because I'm a coach, and when uh-huh. I coach people, I, I mostly just listen. Because I believe that they've got all the answers within themselves, I'm not there to fix them or tell them what to do. So it's yeah. along that line, isn't it, really? Like a bit yeah. like co- and coaching, yeah. Yeah, because see, the other thing is too, is if you look for an answer in somebody else, like if you you make somebody a guru, for example, they yeah. have become the source for your life. Once again, that thing with having something else be the source for the creation of your life is you can't receive anything unless it comes from that source. Yeah. So this is an acknowledgement that you're the source for the creation of your life and you do know. You as an infinite being have infinite knowing. So this idea that we don't know what's true for us is bullshit. We just haven't been taught to question mm-hmm. because I know for me and I, I think for a lot of us, it's like, question was about how do I find the answer? Yeah. I must say that's one of my gripes about AA because I went to AA and it didn't work for me. But I felt that they were telling me that I was broken and I had a disease and I found it was extremely bad for my self-esteem because I was full of shame anyway. Whereas the kind of work that you do, that's far more empowering, isn't it, than telling people that they're there's something wrong with them because they drink too much. Yeah, and you know what? There is not one person that I have the point of view that there's something wrong with them. One of the things in seeing sobriety as a gift is there's not one thing that I can judge someone else for. I've been there and done it all. And you know what? I get the wrongness that you're going through right now, but you will get to a place that you'll come out of this. One of the things that we talk about in access consciousness is what if your greatest wrongness is your greatest strongness and i heard that for years and i was like bullshit like my greatest wrongness is my greatest evil it's my greatest mistake not what i discovered when i actually started walking through that wrongness i was like holy shit i'm strong we either succeed or we learn from any mistakes i think exactly And that's a really good point is if you didn't look at anything as a mistake and looked at, okay, so what did that create? What awareness? 
Every Saturday afternoon, we open up our Tribe Sober Zoom Cafe. It's a safe space where our members can connect, check in, and just shoot the breeze about alcohol-free living. If you'd like to be a guest at the cafe one Saturday, just drop us an email at Janet at TribeSober.com. That's Janet, J-A-N-E-T, at TribeSober.com, and we'll send you an invitation. So do you facilitate groups and do one-to-one work? facilitate groups i do one-on-one work as well and i'm actually creating some stuff at the moment like a video series and some facebook lives some social lives with some different people to talk about some different stuff with mental health with addiction with never giving up and my desire is to be a voice in the world with that because i've lived it i have first-hand experience i could tell people stories that would make them cringe but but I'm coming out of being ashamed of that and seeing the gift that it can be in the world because we keep a lot of secrets and it's the secrets that we keep that destroy us. Yeah. So yeah. I would like to be a voice to that and, and contribute to more of that in the world where people can come out from behind the curtain and just be like, here I am, warts and all. Yeah, because you're, you're so right. I don't think it was you, it was someone else I was interviewing came up with this statistic, uh, which is that 90% of people who are addicted don't get help they just keep it all to themselves and struggle on that was an american statistics we've got to bust that shame haven't we that stigma and encourage people to be open and to reach out and the kind of work that you're doing will do that so well done you know that for me for many years especially with facilitating i definitely had a commitment to being a savior of people Mm. how do i Mm. save people from this and I realized that doesn't work because that creates a judgment of them and that creates a judgment of me. So now my point of view is I need to live it and to be it in totality. That That's going to be the thing that for each and every one of us, that's us being us is what creates the change in the world. Yeah. And you have no idea how, no idea why, but it's just each and every one of us is a unique and a beautiful gift. How can people contact you, Brendan? I would highly suggest check out accessconsciousness.com, but also you can contact me on my website, which is brendanwatt.com, and check it out. If someone's listening to this, Brendan, and they're in a mess, maybe having those kind of rock bottoms that you mentioned, what would you say to them? How can they change their lives? Where do they start? I think that's the difficult bit. Yeah, I would say, first of all, get really present with it. Like rather than trying to look at it as it's just this big wrongness and trying to lump everything together and, and make it a mess, just get really present with it and go, okay, so would I actually like to change this? That is actually a powerful start because now we've got something to work with. Now you have something to work with and then you can start looking at it. But I would say reach out, find the resources. And there's a lot of stuff out there. Find the help. You cannot do this on your own. That seems to be impossible, doesn't it? We've all tried. And again, (laughs) that's the shame, isn't it? I used to think I got myself into this mess. I could get myself out of it. Yeah, no, it does not work. (laughs) This one is about receiving and changing something because doing it alone just does not work. Thanks so much for the share, Brendan. Let's pull out some key points. 
So Brendan grew up in Australia within an unstable family unit where there was a lot of abuse going on. And his father had a formula for what a man should be, emphasising the importance of being tough and having a trade. Brendan tried hard to conform to these expectations by working in construction, but by his late 20s he was totally depressed. By trying so hard to gain his father's love and respect, he'd lost himself and he knew the life he was leading was not the right life for him. One day, by chance, he discovered a technique called access consciousness and decided to give it a try. Brendan booked a session out of curiosity and much to his surprise, he spent an hour and a half sobbing as he released all his buried emotions. And he was so inspired by the access consciousness process that he trained to be a facilitator and began to make some positive changes in his life. However, in spite of these changes, he was still struggling with alcohol, which he saw as his back door, his escape. That made me think of Lennon Doyle, who talks about using alcohol as the easy button to avoid emotional discomfort. Like so many of us, Brendan spent years trying and failing to cut down on his drinking He was trapped in an endless cycle of stopping and starting and he eventually hit rock bottom and decided to go to AA. Although he was terrified of losing his backdoor escape, he persevered. He attended lots of AA meetings and worked with a sponsor. He realised he was going to have to go through some really painful stuff including stuff from his childhood that was very difficult to face. But he also realised that going through this pain would result in personal growth. So he did the work, and gradually his life began to change. We agreed that the journey to sobriety is a process that leads to freedom and a more authentic life. We also agreed that getting sober was just 10% of the journey, but that it was the essential part, the part that we have to get nailed down, as Brendan put it. Because without sobriety, we can't tackle the rest of the work and learn to thrive. When we quit drinking, we need to take responsibility for our happiness. We can no longer rely on alcohol for those chemical highs. Happiness is a learned skill, and if you want to learn how to keep your happy brain chemicals firing, then have another listen to last week's podcast with neuroscientist Stacey Danford. Sobriety also enables us to consider other parts of our life. Are we eating healthily? Does our exercise plan need stepping up? And the bigger questions, are we in the right job? Are we in the right relationship? If you need some help to look at your life and ask yourself some tough questions, then please check out Glennon Doyle's book and journal. They're both called Untamed, and there's some great triggers for those big scary questions in there. When I first realised that I would have to quit drinking, I saw sobriety as a kind of punishment. But Brendan and I 
both agreed that in reality, sobriety is a gift. Because this journey to sobriety allows individuals to deconstruct their lives and build them anew, something regular drinkers may never experience. At Tribe Sober, we recommend a book by Laura McCowan. The title is We Are the Luckiest, which says it all, really. Another quick-lit book title that says it all is The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober by Catherine Gray. My conversation with Brendan touched on the importance of honesty and integrity and he gave us a great example of catching himself out in a lie, realising that when he was drinking, the lies would just come automatically. We discussed the misconception that external sources, such as money or substances, can create happiness. Brendan used to think that when he had a certain amount of money in his bank account, he would be happy. Well, he got there, but he still wasn't happy. He talked about his work with Access Consciousness, which is a program that empowers individuals to find the answers within themselves and discover their strengths. He highlighted the importance of people acknowledging their unique gifts and the potential for change. You can find out more about Brendan via his website, which is brendanwatt.com. I'll put the link in the show notes. So let me finish by reading out a message from one of our chat rooms. Here's Louise with a great tip. Weekends without alcohol are brilliant. I look forward to them now. The key for me was to have things to do. I made a list of everything that needed doing. It was mainly a list of everything that I'd neglected because of my drinking. Cleaning jobs in the house, sorting out cupboards and drawers, gardening, etc. I would work my way through the list, which would keep me busy and give me a good dopamine hit as I got through it. Having a plan in place really helped. I also had a nice treat for myself for when I'd finished. The money that I'd saved on not buying alcohol, I'd use it to get myself something a cake I really fancied, or a new book I wanted. Well, that's brilliant, Louise. Well done, and thank you for sharing that tip. If you'd like to join our amazing tribe, who encourage and support each other 24-7, then just go to tribesober.com and hit join our tribe. Thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week. Ditching the drink is like climbing a mountain. It's hard, it takes courage and grit, and an experienced guide. And that's where we come in. Here at Tribe Sober, we've climbed that mountain, and we know the view from the top is amazing. We've used our experience to put together a unique membership program that will support you all the way. We've got challenges, chat rooms, sober buddies, trackers, and milestone awards, and that's just for starters. So head on over to tribesober.com and check out our membership program. It's the essential resource for anyone looking to ditch the drink and change their life.